Hey folks, you're listening to How to Win a Campaign, where you'll get an insider's perspective that teaches you not only how to win campaigns, but also how to build movements. I'm Martin Diego Garcia. And I'm Joe Fold. And you can find us at the Campaign Workshop on Instagram and on Threads. Welcome and thanks to listening to this episode, Season 4 of How to Win a Campaign. And like always, if you haven't gone back and listened to the episodes before this, please be sure to do so. There's some really great episodes on movement building. Well, listen, today's episode is one of your favorite topics, Martine, also one of mine. We're talking all about coalitions. We'll be discussing movement building through coalitions and how to make an impact in the spaces you care about. I really believe in the power of coalitions to help you, your organization, your community really reach its goals by expanding the reach of your movement, by expanding your resources, your ability, your impact. It's really a great way to help you and your organization increase your access to resources, increase the impact of the influence you're making, really increase that capacity so that you're able to do more across the board. But Joe, can you talk a little bit about why coalitions are so important, particularly when it comes to movement building and can be an effective catalyst to moving the needle on a lot of issues? Yeah, well, building and growing coalitions can really help by providing a strategic approach to advancing a cause, also creating social impact that emphasizes the importance of working collaboratively to a large cross-section of the community and really can bring diverse perspectives and help grow an issue that might have really stayed very narrowly focused for a long time. Martine, what do you think? It also allows you to share and have access to resources and potentially skill sets that you may have not had otherwise. So if you come in as an organization or a person who has, let's say, really amazing grassroots skills and boots on the ground who can knock doors and make phone calls, but maybe you're not so as skilled up on either working with the media and or doing digital organizing, right? Finding another group or organization that can partner alongside you really overall then it helps amplify and enhance the voices of everybody across both organizations. And these days, we're really seeing that play out on a number of issues where groups and organizations are coming together to increase their resources and their impact. But Joe, do you have any elements that you really think sort of help define what good coalition work is and how to build it? The first thing that I like folks to think about is not the coalition you start with, but what is the coalition you want to end with? So think about what is the coalition you want versus the coalition you have. And often people miss that step, that they just look at the table, the initial meeting that they have, and they say, well, that's our coalition. What I like, and I know what you teach too, is you start at that first meeting and you say, okay, who's missing from the table? How do we get more people around this table? Let's go back and the next meeting will be the real meeting of the coalition once we get the right people in these seats. And that may take two or three meetings to get there, but you have to really think about what is that group and not just take the group you have as this is it. And a lot of that's built through trust, right, and communication and, of course, collaboration. It really relies on a collective effort by all of the members you're bringing into the coalition who understand the shared goals you all are trying to accomplish. So being very clear on what those goals are and what coalition members are meant to do, I think is going to be really important because 
it is going to require that level of trust to produce a strong strategic plan, to coalesce around messaging, to have a united voice and really understand not only your own leadership, but the leadership within the coalition. And so basing that in trust and communication and collaboration, I think, is really key. But Joe, what are some other characteristics of the types of movement building that really help amplify and move the needle on issues? Well, it's sustainability within coalition building, thinking about the long-term impact and growth, and then thinking about does the coalition have that built-in capacity and longevity? Who are the leaders that you're starting with? What is the leaders that you're growing within this coalition? Thinking about what does conflict resolution look like in your coalition? Don't start with a coalition and say, well, there's never going to be conflict. Therefore, we don't need a system. Start with the knowledge that there's going to be a conflict. Start with the knowledge that, hey, we're going to have a conversation at the beginning where we talk about which is the best time to do this. What do we do when there is conflict? How do we work it out and create, as you talked about, that trust and that openness to say, we know there's going to be conflict. We know there's going to be division. Here's the process that we're going to work through it. And we're going to start thinking about each other with the assumption of positive intent and really go through there and build that conflict resolution process and then also know that the best coalitions have diverse group members and differences across processes and have ideas that need to be resolved. If things were working perfectly, you wouldn't need a coalition to begin with. That's why you need one. Understanding that each of these groups, organizations, or leaders are coming in because they have some personal vested interest in the shared goals you all are trying to accomplish, but they do have some personal vested interest. And you want to be aware of those at the beginning to not only hopefully help achieve them, but also build that trust to ensure that we're lifting all boats in these coalitions. Because sometimes, depending on what happens, those goals that you all set out at the beginning will evolve and change based on the political landscape based on elections, based on any of the pandemic that happened. There are so many things that can sort of change the way that you are coalescing and working with your members to have built that trust and that process for you all to be able to evolve from the beginning, I think is also really an important key piece of building your coalition and having those conversations early. But it's also making sure that your coalition is inclusive and that it actually that the stakeholders at the table really represent everybody who is potentially being impacted, touched, benefited, harmed by whatever issue that you're working on. And very much so ensuring that those whom are directly impacted by the work that you all are doing are at the center of that table, really come in with a level of power and insight and perspective that is being listened to, heard, and encouraged. And really, that's how you're building it for longevity and influence. But Joe, do you have examples of how coalition work that you have done has worked in the past or tools that folks have utilized in the past to really help start their coalitions off on the right foot? I'm a big fan of the direct action organizing chart, big fan of power mapping. I'm also a big fan of 
MOUs, a memorandum of understanding of what, and frankly, like I love just starting a conversation with a coalition with trying to ask the question, what does success look like? And just getting people to agree on what we're trying to do together. I think often people don't ask those big picture questions and they make assumptions that we all have the exact same goals and the exact same needs and resources and we don't. When I think of examples, I think of two different versions. Like one, whether you're working in a particular movement like reproductive justice or environmental or LGBTQ, there are very often multiple organizations within those movements who do very specific things. I think into the LGBTQ space, when I was back working at the LGBTQ Victory Funded Institute, we had a lane of electoral politics. HRC had a larger lane of changing the national narrative and really becoming a household name. We had Get Equal, who was like our direct action organizing, like sit-ins and other things. So people took different parts of what it looked like to build a movement and worked alongside with one another to really create large and impactful change versus coalition groups and organizations from different issue areas or different communities or different topics coming together to create large inflection points. When I think of some of the marches on Washington where there were environmental groups and women's groups and LGBT groups, different folks from different movements who were coming together to really amplify an issue, really show support for one another. And I want you all to be thinking about in the coalition work that you are doing. First of all, are you talking to the other folks that are in your space and building those relationships? But also, are you building those reciprocal relationships to folks whose mission may not be exactly your mission, but they do tie it together as these all do, and they do intersect and thinking about how you can effectively utilize both of those types of coalition work? In the end, you want to make sure that you're not creating something that's already there. You want to amplify and or do something new and fill that gap. And that's what we've seen that's been essential over time. And in the end, your coalition wants to make impact. So doing that research, engaging with other folks in the space, seeing where the gaps are can be really powerful. And we're lucky today because we have two incredible folks who really have been in that forefront of coalition-oriented politics and the fight for human rights and really understand it. We have Vanessa Gonzalez and Cedric Lawson. They're team members at the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. And we're really excited in our conversation with them to dig into coalition building. Yes, and they're both very dear friends of mine, so I'm very excited for folks to hear them. We'll be right back. And we're back. Today, we are joined by two really amazing team members from the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. The Leadership Conference has been fighting for civil and human rights since the 1950s, representing hundreds of civil rights and human rights organizations at the federal level. And today, I'm super excited about our guests because they are dear, dear friends of mine. First, we have Vanessa Gonzalez, who has worked for the Leadership Conference since 2019, serving as the Executive Vice President of Field and Management Services. Vanessa has a plethora of experience under her belt and has worked in a variety of outreach and advocacy positions, including with the Department of Education, the Southern New Hampshire University, and the Center for American Progress. Cedric serves as the field director at the Leadership Conference and has been in that role since 2018, where he works to engage and mobilize state-based leaders and activists. Beyond his 11 years that he's been at the Leadership Conference, Cedric also has a plethora of experience and a long history of organizing work on variety of campaigns and with a variety of organizations. 
Hi, hi, hi. Thank you so much for deciding to join us. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's always fun to see friends in really powerful positions across the movement space that we get to talk to and learn from and hear your brilliance. So is um, that us? Is that us? That's you. That's you. (laughs) In my eyes, that's you. So first, we really start off a lot of these episodes like this just to give our listeners a sense of how folks got into these positions when we don't often hear about them sort of in the traditional education space. So Vanessa, will you start first and talk to us about how did you get to Leadership Conference and the position you're in now? Yeah, so I have a bit of a wonky career trajectory, which I highly recommend that young people think about. So you don't have to be so linear. Your experiences actually make the work richer. And so for me, I'll just say, you know, I just got back from Texas spring break with my daughter and my very first protest was during my junior year in college against the administration for which I was working at the time. So needless to say, I quit the next day, but it was really because we were trying to say that we were an alternative to traditional colleges because we were lower cost. We were very small school. I loved my college, but at the same time, we weren't offering daycare. We weren't offering regular night classes. We weren't offering online yet. And so it was like, how are we non-traditional? There was just numerous things about the funding of the structure. And so I decided let's protest this and held a <laughs> a massive kind of speak in where everybody could come from across the university all the students and speak but no faculty was allowed to speak or administration they had to just sit in the front row and kind of take it i will say i will probably do things a little bit different because those were also the people I had to negotiate with. So it probably wasn't great to have people in their face, but lessons learned. That's just kind of what sparked it from their various electoral campaigns, really being engaged in the reproductive health rights and justice space for sure. And particularly as it pertains to Latinas in that space and what that looks like, which is we are often in the background, unfortunately, still. So really pushing forward in that space. And then all of these things came to culmination with the position at the leadership conference. And so had the opportunity to really step into some more management role, help to really, I hope, grow more junior organizers so they can go on and leave us and and lead their own field teams. And then with the membership, I just like talking to people and talking to different people. And I think some of the things that our members are fighting for and that they hold center are just, you know, fascinating and areas of work I've never indulged in. So it's been really interesting experience, but it's been a long road, but I think the spark was early. We have been able to sort of work alongside each other in a couple of different spaces, and it's been really amazing to see your career trajectory and your growth. I love it. Cedric, same question to you. Talk to us a little bit about how you got here and, and what made you join Leadership Conference. Yeah, absolutely. So I joined the Leadership Conference as an organization because it's a great place to work. <laughs> They're passionate people. It's a great compensation package, to be honest about it. And there's an ability to grow here mm-hmm. that I've always loved and I've seen from other colleagues who have either started their career at the leadership conference or they have gone on to different places, but I've seen that they've had the opportunity to really grow here. And I'll also say that I really didn't know it at the time, but I've always been a part of the leadership conference universe in one way or another. So whether that has been being in the student movement, whether that has been being a part of the LGBT justice movement, the local organizations that I worked with and for in Wisconsin, my home state, 
are in one way or another either state affiliates of national organizations that are part of the leadership conference, worked with the leadership conference on major campaigns like saving affirmative action and equal opportunity. So it really felt like a homecoming in a way, but then also just the opportunity to get a bird's eye view of what's happening within the broader civil and human rights space. So it's been really great. I love it. And it's been a culmination in a lot of ways of the passion that I have for this work. Similarly, it's been amazing to sort of walk alongside you and see your growth and your leadership continue to amaze me and astonish me all along the way. You mentioned this a little bit, but Leadership Conference really does engage at a very high level and, a, and, and a sort of across a number of issues and the progressive space in coalition building. And it's really one of the core things that you all do as an organization. And it's why we brought you on to hear your all's perspective in how coalition building plays an integral role, I think, in movement spaces and in creating movements and in movement building. So Vanessa, I'm going to throw this to you. Can you talk to us a little bit about how do you define coalition building and how does that sort of operate in the leadership conference sort of framework? Yeah, I love coalition building because I think it's one, the most efficient believe it or not, way to have a lot of effective change because you, in theory, are talking to different people or different audiences for whom your presence and message resonates with versus others, right? But you're still all moving towards ideally the same end goal. Now, the process may be different and there are definitely disagreements on how you get to that end goal. But at the end of the day, I have found that people typically say, okay, we got to do this. I'll give on this piece if you give on this piece, right? So it's also a real experiment in how democracy is pushed and moved. I really appreciate within this space as well that people feel a sense of community. So it's not just coalition for coalition's sake. I know from electoral politics, a lot of times coalitions come together and they're like, we're going to get this person elected and then they kind of dissipate, right? Like the table kind of unfolds. Here, because we've been around for so long and because we have some pretty phenomenal wins under our belt for the organization, there's seen value in keeping the coalition solid and core. And though people may be like, how do you do that with over 230 organizations? The difference is, is we allow organizations to kind of decide what fight they want to be involved in. But we are happy to act in service of the coalition. We have folks who are massive and like don't really need us. Like they have staff, they've got funding. And then we have orgs that are like really tiny and like have limited resources. And we are the place where we're able to say, you all should connect and work together, which may not organically happen out in the world. And so that's always been really kind of interesting. I also think that the building of a coalition in this kind of space is a recognition that we all have the same bad guys coming after us. And so everybody needs to get in line and like jump on board, whatever other kind of phrasing I can say. And like, let's push together because they're coming for us next. They're coming for you next, right? Like it's just this whole conversation. And I think in the progressive space, we still have a lot of work to do about coordinating and what does that look like and recognizing that resources are best used when shared. But I think when we talk about coalition and coming together and really thinking about how do we build plans, that's when you see like the beauty and the power. You hit on a really good point, but I want to put a finer point on it as like, you can be part of a coalition, but even being part of a coalition takes 
resources, staff time, energy, whether that's through you all as an organization or internally with your partners. It isn't just, oh, I've signed up and now I don't have to do anything. It's like yeah. I've signed up and now part of my energy has to go to being part of this coalition, mm-hmm. which I would imagine has changed over the years and over the time. Cedric, you've been at Leadership Conference now for 11 years. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you've seen both sort of overall in movement organizing, but also at Leadership Conference, the changes that have happened as it pertains to coalition work? Everything is just going so fast sometimes that it's hard to really take note of how things have changed. So hearing this question, you know, I think out loud, I'm like, what has changed? And I think one major piece is just taking a look at the timeline of our lives in the past Mm -hmm. 10 years, for example. So obviously COVID, obviously Trumpism, the election and re-election of Barack Obama, these are major intervals in terms of how the work has changed. And when we think about, for example, the pandemic, everything in our lives changed. So taking a look at the calendar, when it was March 2020, we were in the midst of a census count. We were getting prepared for a major presidential election. So those two activities that we work on here at the Leadership Conference and those issue areas, everything shifted. We had to move to an online or digital engagement related to ensuring that people were participating in the democracy. We saw the threats that were coming at every level of government in terms of participating in the democracy, regardless of the pandemic. So we had to make those shifts. And keeping all of that in mind, it is also important to realize in what ways we've also had to shift with the democracy itself. So when we think about the different changes in voting rights that have happened over the last 10 years, we had to keep that in mind in addition to the pandemic. The way that we do our work has shifted through the political landscape, due to, for example, the pandemic, the economic landscape. All of that is intertwined. We constantly have to rethink how we're doing our work based off the shifts that happen in the world around us. i also say that how the communities that we work with We also have to be mindful in what ways these communities are often changing. So whether it's, for example, communities of color, the LGBT community, young people, how people self-identify is changing and how people see themselves in the world is changing. So something that an old boss of ours, Wade Henderson, would say is no permanent allies, no permanent enemies. Mm -hmm. I've added to that to say no permanent allies, no permanent enemies, only current issues and current identities. So how we work with each other in coalition, we have to be mindful of the constant shifts that are happening and how people self-identify, how they see themselves in the world, but then also understand that we have the opportunity to work with different people at any given moment. I'm a big believer in working with unlikely allies, and I'll save that for another time. (laughs) I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Just dropping knowledge left and right here, Cedric. I I love it. And and you're right. We're like change is constant and adaptability is not only key, but absolutely necessary, particularly now when things are changing day to day, hour to hour. We have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow that's going to sort of change the landscape, which is exciting and completely terrifying. But I'd like to hear from both of you here, but I'll start with Cedric. Can you talk a little bit about examples of benefits of working in coalition? Yeah, absolutely. So when working in coalition, there's a bedrock. We have the opportunity to really, over time, create relationships that we can go back to when necessary. 
to have a friend, you got to be a friend. So this is a place where we have the opportunity to really understand what our needs are, what our self-interests are, and what the needs and self-interests are of other organizations or other constituencies or communities that are in the coalition. What we don't do enough of, whether this is in politics or in organizing or even in business, we don't take enough time to really understand how much trust plays a role in the work that we do and how much trust plays a role in buy-in and being able to move forward with any collaborative activities that we're doing. So the idea of a coalition, bringing organizations together, potentially from disparate backgrounds and experiences to achieve a common goal, when we have that trust and that trust is built in, we can come together to work on these different issues, census, education equity, fair courts, justice reform, you name it. When we can come together in those different task forces that we have here at the leadership conference and come together at the table with a shared agenda that we all agree upon, that's based in trust. So the opportunity that we have to continue to build on that trust and to create that bedrock of trust to work together, that is indispensable. And it's so important to name that. Vanessa, from your perspective and sort of your engagements, where do you see some pretty core benefits of coalition building? Yeah, I want to lift up one point that Cedric mentioned in the trust. I do think it takes an amazing amount of faith in people who you don't necessarily really know to agree that we're going to jump in this together and trust that when they say they're going to do something, they're going to do something, or at least to the best of their ability, right? You have to trust like, okay, they tried, which is a lot of times the case. I do think that there's a couple different benefits. One of them is humbling yourself in knowing that as an organization, and also honestly, as an organizer and advocate, you are not the best person to talk to all the people. And so being in a coalition allows for those different voices to flourish and come to the forefront, depending upon the audience and who's your targets. It also allows you, again, resource sharing, super important. It increases the size of your megaphone, ideally. Oftentimes in D.C., we feel like we've got a really good coalition on lock. But what we have to do is really lend that power to state partners who are on the front lines of so many of these horrible fights in state legislatures and be able to say, okay, what do you need from us? And that we have seen is valuable because of the coalition, because folks within states that are our partners understand, oh, they're connected to so-and-so and this org and this org and this org. So for them, ideally, the goal is they only have to go to one organization to feel the rest of us kind of coming into play support. It's also just kind of professionally a good way to hone your skills on negotiating, fix your face, how to like be sure that you are also listening to all points and moderating spaces that sometimes are very difficult and choppy. And you're just waiting for that one person to say something that you know is going to pull up the whole room. When that happens, like how do you bring it back so that again, that trust isn't lost and you're still creating a container for some difficult conversations. Yeah. Because I mean, in coalition building, you're not working for one particular moment or one particular instance. You're working for the long haul yeah. and you have to be aware of, yes, the immediate urgency of whatever is current at hand, but also that anything you do now could impact future work with these folks on different issues. 
Vanessa touched on this a little bit, but Cedric, can you talk a little bit about some of the differences that happen when you're organizing or movement building at the grassroots level versus what you all really do is at the national level? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's important to define organizing first and foremost. So organizing communities coming together to act and shared interest, a process where people who live in proximity to each other or belong to a particular group or have a shared experience share a common problem and come together in an organization or activity that acts in our shared self-interest. And the truth is that grassroots organizing takes on many different forms, as does national level organizing. I think what's important about grassroots organizing is it gives us the opportunity to engage with individuals, individuals who are exercising their own individual power and understand how we can work together collectively to harness that power to achieve what we're looking to accomplish. So that, of course, looks different from how we'd engage with national partners. National partners often are individuals who are leading a grassroots organization. And then we're working with, and as Vanessa mentioned, negotiating with them to understand how we all can work together to achieve a particular goal, which is what we would call coalition building. We're actively working with organizations, in this case, organization leaders, to achieve that goal. What's so important about doing both simultaneously, and this is something that Vanessa and I and our team take very seriously, is having an understanding of what's going on in communities and in states, having a finger on the pulse. So what does it look like to have an understanding of what individuals are sharing with us about how they feel about the federal judiciary? or how they feel about their voting rights, or how they feel about the state of justice in their community. And from there, being able to relay that, not only to our colleagues internally, say, for example, those who are lobbying on the Hill, those who are doing messaging work and communications and engaging with media, but then also ensuring that having that full understanding of what's going on in states, where the grassroots are coming from, is core to how we engage with decision makers to achieve our goals. So there are some differences, of course, the differences being how we specifically engage with the grassroots. Are we going door to door? Are we reaching out via text, SMS? Are we engaging folks through local institutions like churches or unions? And then with national partners, we're engaging with them here in Washington, DC or in state capitals to ensure that we have an understanding of what's going on and everyone can be on the same page as we engage decision makers and stakeholders. But there are way more similarities than differences. And the similarities are less about approach, but more so about the values that we have in how we engage on the local and national level, the grassroots and the national level. You haven't touched on this exactly, but when any of this work happens, sometimes there are setbacks, right? And Absolutely. challenges come up or the issue was super relevant at the moment, but <laughs> all of a sudden, like there are some stagnant moments too, right? Indeed. So Vanessa, could you talk a little bit about how do you deal with setbacks or moments of plateau, right? Where nothing is really happening on the issue when it comes to organizing and coalition? I drink a lot. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I do. It happens. It can kind of feel like a stab to the core of the heart of the work a bit. John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act 
listen, you don't do this work unless you have a sense of optimism and hope that even against all odds, maybe, just maybe something will break through on someone and they'll vote, you know, because you've been working so hard. You've gotten all the messengers. You've hit all the tactics. The John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act was one in which our coalition, numerous coalitions actually came together. We were able to really work well and coordinate which lanes folks were going into, who was taking the states, what states, who was taking the nationals, what groups, right? We had message maps. We had you name it. It was beautiful coordination. And it included some democracy groups, which hadn't really been at the table before and with some civil rights groups, right? And then gender justice groups, you name it, because everybody knows that voting is the tool for change. But the opposition knows that too, right? So they have been chipping away at our ability to utilize our tools to the fullest extent and to achieve the dreams that we want. But we engaged hundreds of thousands of people. We did text messaging. We did teleton halls. We did rallies. You name it. And it was all really just hopeful that maybe that will turn this one person. We didn't win that fight legislatively because Congress is a dark, dark place and doesn't necessarily care about democracy. And so what we had to do in that space was to be able to say, okay, but what did we win out of this? So we did win the formation of really strong coalitions. We did make some relationships that folks hadn't worked together before. We did increase an amount of trust between groups who typically don't work with communities of color centered to be able to say back and forth, like, hey, you got to do better and we'll help you do better. And for them to say, okay, well, here's our big network, like show us how to do better and you can use this network, right? So there's definitely a give and take in that. And so, you know, there was a postmortem, there was a sit down. There was also a conversation, you know, a couple of people were like ready to go the next day. And the majority of us were like, no, stop. We are exhausted. Our people are exhausted. Nobody wants another email from any of us. Let's just stop. Right. And so we had to collectively agree that we were all going to take a step back and wait. But now it's like, all right, everybody good? Got your rest? Let's go. And so now you see the coalition that was already built kind of coming back and, and gelling again for the next fight, particularly as we go into an election season. And I don't mean that in a partisan way. I mean it more in that we know that the opposition to democracy are already starting to chip away at voting options, right? At all of these things that have helped progressive causes win because we know that people want them. But the only way we can know that the people want them is that they vote for the folks who champion those, right? And so we know that that is true and that works when you allow folks that opportunity to voice and use their voice at the ballot box. But again, they know all this too. And so it is through coalition and through continuing to keep that optimism, maybe just one more, right? And also just getting smarter, starting more locally, starting earlier. Progressives always don't start as early as we should. And we continue to come into communities and say, you need to vote, you need to vote. But we don't do a good job of showing the benefits if you do vote. And so I think for leadership conference and the coalition, we're trying to do better about that. And what does that look like, right? And tying it all really to the issues. I think you've hit on some really key things that when setbacks happen, it is always a time for evaluation and debriefing and sort of taking the minute to sort of look at what happened. 
always lovely to count your wins, right? And then think about wins in a very expansive manner. And then when the plateau comes, that may be just the universe being like, you get to rest, take a moment. You did a lot of work. It's a time to rest a little bit. And that is totally fair and valid and important to the work that we're all doing. And particularly in this political climate we sort of find ourselves in, where in actuality and in perspective, we are a very polarized nation at the moment. And there are very vocal people on both sides and a lot of folks in the middle trying to figure out what's happening. How has, Vanessa, this politics currently and this sort of political polarization impacted coalition building and the work that you all are doing? Yeah, I think in some ways it's actually strengthened the coalition because we don't have time for the pettiness and the arguments. At the end of the day, we got to get this done because, again, as I said, they're coming for all of us. Today is just your day. And I've seen principals just be like, all right, fine, like, let's just get it done. And that's been really refreshing and new. I think there's also an understanding not everybody's letterhead needs to be on everything. Not everybody's logo needs to be everywhere. And that is actually a little bit different, too. And that folks are like, okay, we just need to get the work done. Let's push, which I think, again, helps new voices and younger organizations move to the forefront and take some of that space and visibility, which is important for the continuation of the fight. It is scary to think about we're going to be wanting to send folks into communities. We're going to be wanting to go canvas and knock on doors to talk to people because that's what we do. We'd like actually speaking to people. It's scary to think about what happens when you knock on that door and there's someone who's essentially opposed to just you being alive as someone who is long canvassed and also trained a ton of canvassers about the dangers. The dangers used to be like, what happens if a dog comes to the door? You know, how do you hold that dog back? Right? Like that yeah. was like that was the thing we were scared about. So what do you admit by a dog? Yeah. Like you put your foot up so he can't, you know, he slams into the glass yeah, door. Right, right, right. You know, and now it's like you have to be really thoughtful about what does it mean if they're armed on the other side or things like that. And so I think when we look about what we're going to be asking to the community, thankfully there's other tools that hopefully won't put people right in front of those highly toxic and dangerous folks. And we can start reaching people through social media. You know, email is always great. Tell the town halls now is a norm. There's other ways to do it. But again, it has changed how you can organize if you really care about your people, right? And what does that look like? On the other side of the coin, it's always never enough. So while we can continue to push and we can like still advocate for things, there is the reality of there has to be negotiation on both sides and there has to be some sense of bipartisanship to move stuff. Like that's just where we are. And for some, that's not acceptable and it's not enough. It's this weird space to be in when you think, no, this is a win, y'all, this is a win. But because it's so polarized, what could have been considered a win even four years ago is like, no, that's not a win, right? You caved. No, we didn't. You don't understand, right? But you have to answer to the public and to the people who support you. And so it has made it harder on both sides. It's definitely more dangerous. I do think there's new leaders who are coming out because they are like, no, this is going to stop, like, Black voters matter, right, coming out of a lot of this. Some of the youth leaders coming out to be able to say, we're not doing this. And I love it because we need everyone in that spectrum of the fight. And we need everybody to feel like they have a space and they have an advocacy home within the larger progressive community. 
even as you were touching on that sort of transition in canvassing and how we should be thinking about it, I've heard in a number of conversations in this season of this idea of just mental health services, self-care services, like what are we doing as organizations knowing that we're putting our communities in these very toxic and sometimes volatile places to to weave that into the work that we're doing because we are so polarized right now and because it can get so nasty out there. So as we've heard, you you two have been doing this work and and know the ins and outs and, and are experts in this coalition building space. Cedric, what are some key tools that you think our listeners should be considering as they are starting to build coalitions, continuing to build, improving their coalition work? I'll start off with just two concepts that folks should keep in mind. One is that it's all relationships. It truly is. We've heard this before in all different facets of our lives. But when it comes down to being able to work with individuals, it's about building those relationships, understanding what individual self-interests are, and understanding how you can connect with individual people or with groups. And if you're not, for example, as Vanessa mentioned earlier, a best messenger at that time, then what does it mean to engage with other like-minded individuals to build out those relationships via surrogates who can help to build stronger relationships overall when you're trying to work with someone? So relationship building, in the ways that it works best for you, meeting your own self where you're at, (laughs) doing that work. And then secondly, engaging unlikely allies. Of course, do it safely. Be mindful of who's willing to engage you and respect who you are, your humanity. With that said, you would be surprised in what ways you can build strong relationships with individuals who are quite different from you based off of self-interest, a shared self-interest that you didn't know you had before connecting with each other. So whether that's related to a particular campaign or an issue you're engaging in, don't count out individuals that you may not know where they stand on a particular issue. One great example that we know of in American society, even globally, is the misconception about LGBT people and the faith communities. There are so many ways in which LGBT people are not only centered in a number of faith communities, but also the work that has happened within the past few generations to really ensure that there is a respect for LGBT people, gender nonconforming individuals within communities of faith. And that stands as a testament of what it means to build unlikely alliances across different communities that our common opposition would like to have us believe cannot be forged. To speak to something Vanessa mentioned earlier, we in the civil and human rights community, those of us who care about promoting, protecting, and preserving civil and human rights are working against a common opposition that would like us to believe that we are divided in terms of our different constituencies that we come from, from our different identities. That is simply untrue. We have an opportunity to work together across these differences to ensure that we are preserving those civil and human rights and to call out that common opposition in what it's doing. So engaging unlikely allies is not only important in terms of building coalition, but showing that common opposition, how united we are in making sure that we're building an America as good as its ideals. 
Could not agree with you more. Continuing to drop knowledge, Cedric Lawson, people. Pow, pow. So, <laughs> lightning round question for both of you, and I'll start with Vanessa. Any podcast, movies, shows, books that you are currently digging into that our listeners should consider? Uh, so many. So, first podcast, please listen to the Leadership Conferences own podcast. We can do a little cross promotion here. Yes, please. How can our listeners find that? Our podcast is called Pod for the Cause. And you can find it on Apple or any of the services in which you stream podcasts on. So please like and follow. I used to be the old host. The new host is phenomenal. So please take a listen. You know, I think I'm listening to everything other folks are listening to and and watching. And like, you know, The Last of Us was like, oh, my God, this is actually viable. This could actually happen to all of us. Right. right. And I'm never eating mushrooms again. I know. And, you know, I hope Pedro Pascal finds me if this all goes down. But, you know, not to be preachy, but in this space, you got to keep reading on what is needed in the community. So I'm reading a couple of historical books about the civil rights movement, as well as, you know, I did read It Starts With Us and It Ends With Us for a nice little relaxing brain cleanse, I guess, if you will. So definitely check out the podcast. If you know Pedro Pascal, ask him to come find me. <laughs> and Cedric, over to you. Yeah, so I am listening to Vibe Check. Vibe Check is a podcast of three Black queer creatives that hash out what's going on in the world. And they are so spot on in terms of a lot of their analyses. And they're so ready to wrestle out those analyses with each other. And so it's politics, it's pop culture, it's what's going on in the environment or with the democracy. So I love it. I've never retroactively listened to a weekly podcast. So it started like last August and I'm I'm at like October now. I'm listening every week. So shout out to Vibe Check. Love it. I get the hype now with podcasts. One book that I've been constantly recommending to folks is Wilmington's Lie. This Mm -hmm. is a nonfiction book, a Pulitzer Prize winner from 2021 that delves into the history of Wilmington, North Carolina at the turn of the last century. So in the 1890s and what multiracial political coalition had survived the ending of Reconstruction and the coup that was purported by white supremacists in the area to squash that political coalition there. And that really ended not only Reconstruction in terms of you know the last candle being blown out, but then also that area was the last area in the country to send a Black congressman to Washington. That ended in 1901, and then there was not a re-election of a Black member of Congress until 1927. So... I'm saying a lot here, but I bring this book up because it's so important for people to know history in this moment. It's so easy to think that all of this is happening new. This is something we've never seen before. But as Mark Twain says, history doesn't always repeat itself, but it often rhymes. So we're seeing a lot of rhymes in history right now in terms of what our common opposition would like to see when it comes to ending the multiracial coalition building and democracy that we've created. It's time to get real about that. And it's time to be honest about that and understand the importance of coalitions like the Leadership Conference in making sure that we continue to promote not only a multiracial democracy, but a democracy with 
all marginalized communities that have faced discrimination in this country having a fighting chance. So we need to know our history to make sure that we have an effective strategy going forward. So Wilmington's lie, I've been telling people to read this for about a year now. I was like, they should pay you for that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I need to meet the author. <laughs> that advertising you just did. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you for the brilliance you've shared with our listeners. I'm sure they are appreciative, as am I. I continue to learn something every time I engage with both of you. And for our listeners, if you want to learn more about the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, you can go to civilrights.org. Or as Vanessa mentioned, check out their podcast, Pod for a Cause. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thanks, Martin. Bye, everybody. Thank you. And we'll be right back. And we're back. I'm sure as you have heard, it is always lovely to be in space with Vanessa and Cedric as somebody who has not only seen their careers, but also has worked alongside them in a number of capacities. And it's always a pleasure to get reminded about what important roles that they play in building coalition that promotes and protects and preserves civil and human rights across a number of issues and really important topics. But Joe, what were some things that stuck out to you in that conversation? Well, so many. One, that resources are best when shared, and there's a ton of work to do when coordinating and directing resources and making sure they're going in the right places. And you have to constantly rethink how you're going to work together. You need to be mindful of how communities are changing and how the world is changing and how engagement is changing. Also know that there's no permanent allies and no permanent enemies and coalitions are all about building relationships, including engaging those unlikely allies like we talked about in the first segment, that idea of the coalition you have versus the coalition you want. Martine, what are a few more highlights? Similarly, that the ability to share in resources, whether that's funding or capacity or skill set, you name it, relationships, really increases the individual's megaphone. You can only do so much in a 24-hour day. Hopefully, you're sleeping and eating. But your ability to bring more folks to the table only allows that additional ability of capacity and time and energy that hopefully increases the impact that you all are making. But that it's also important to work simultaneously with the individual, with the national with the organizational level partners so that everybody feels like they're on the same page and they understand their lane in the movement work that you all are doing. We don't get time back and we have some limited resources. So ensuring that you're communicating what the roles are and the importance of each of those roles from the individual grassroots organizer all the way up to these national organizational leaders so that we're all moving the ball in the same direction. And I think lastly, just getting smarter, really starting locally and starting early for as much as is possible and for as much as we have the capacity to do that, especially given today's really digital and online tools and skills and platforms that you're able to really get granular with folks and really give them the tools that they need on the local level to really amplify your message and be your eyes and ears on the ground for folks. But Joe, you mentioned no permanent allies and no permanent enemies. Can you talk a little bit about what that feels like or could look like when you're moving from effort to effort or campaign to campaign when sometimes they're an ally and then sometimes they're not. 
Well, part of it is somewhere in between. You might have like frenemies. You want to make sure that you're figuring out what the coalition partners need and what is the reason for them to be engaged. Don't just make an assumption that because you're part of this coalition, everyone is going to be a part of that coalition. You got to give people a reason. And I think often what happens is there's just this assumed we're always going to be a part of this coalition and you really have to explain the goals of why this new version is going to get these new allies or these past allies together again. Vanessa and Cedric talked a little bit about this too, but many coalitions and many issues right, have been going on for a very long time and we've been moving the needle on them and sometimes we have little wins and sometimes we have big losses. Can you, Joe, talk a little bit about how do you keep a coalition to stay positive and optimistic or at least forward moving even when there's been some really tough losses along the way? Well, I love celebrating those little wins and those little wins can be Lots of different things. It can be getting a group of people together in a community you haven't been in yet to talk about the issue. It could be getting a legislator who wasn't on board who's now sponsoring the legislation, even though the legislation hasn't moved. It could mean hitting a fundraising goal. It could be getting someone to give a testimonial. There's lots of different wins to celebrate along the way. And even though you're trying to get something done statewide, you might have done something in a town or a city. And just thinking about those smaller goals, I think often what happens is that people think, well, winning means just winning the whole thing, and then they don't celebrate real victories along the way. And I think there's lots of things to look at and lots of ways to show that you're making that incremental success. Sometimes we get so fixated on the big thing that we ignore the small things that we're doing to get there. Absolutely. And I think it's also a part of that continued communication, right? A lot of these groups and organizations within your coalition are also doing plenty of other things. And so you want to make sure that you are setting up a calendar for yourself to continue to message to them, to continue to send them resources, to continue to give them updates, to continue to show that there is movement happening, even in the times when maybe there's really not much for them to do, but you're keeping on their radar and continuing to build that relationship so that when there are things to do, they are up to date on what's happening. They understand the role that they're playing. They remember you and it will answer your phone call when you need them to show up and do the work. Yeah. And celebrate that diversity of opinion in your coalition. There are going to be differences. There are going to be arguments. There are going to be disagreements. And then when you work together to solve it and figure it out and get yourself on a path and then have that little win. Again, the idea that the process is working and that you're engaging and working things out is also something to be celebrated and the core of a actually functioning coalition. So, Martine, again, this has been amazing. Thank you all for tuning into today's episode. If you have any questions or comments about coalition building, check out our website at thecampaignworkshop.com. Our information can be found in the episode description. Absolutely. And be sure to like, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned because we'll have one more episode of this season before we start our seven questions next week. So until next time, this is Martin Diego Garcia. And Joe Fold breaking down how to win a campaign. How to win a campaign is Joe Fold, Martin Diego Garcia, Elizabeth Rowe, Phoebe Retta, Samantha Sondek, and Lauren Odom. Music by Danielle Pinto. 
Audio editing by Christopher Lang. Special thanks to the team at the Campaign Workshop. Please review, like, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.